This is an area where a substantially new way of thinking, in a sense, is required from the very short-term, socially and politically oriented focus that we usually have when we address these issues. And I think it's very important to remind ourselves of the geological timeframes that we're talking about in terms of the weapons usability and the biological hazards related to radioactive uh, materials, especially fissile materials. Plutonium doesn't have an especially long half-life on the scale of things, but 24,400 years is four times the t which is one half-life, is four times the time since writing was invented, twice the time since settled agriculture developed, and about the same time as the last ne Neanderthals were still uh, walking on planet Earth. The time frames are simply way beyond those of any human institution in terms of its longevity that we can conceive. The more we know about the adverse health consequences of radiation, the worse it looks, and that's been an almost relentless um, trend, almost without exception in recent decades. Let me just share with you a couple of recent pieces of data that underscore this. One is a very large study, the largest ever study of nuclear industry workers undertaken by the International Agency for Research on Cancer, half a million people in 15 countries, that contrary to the conventional wisdom that low-dose radiation fractionated over a long period is less injurious than acute doses delivered at one moment in time, this study found risks associated with the, these exposures within recommended occupational limits for the vast majority of these workers that were several times higher than what you would expect on the basis of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This really does challenge our conventional wisdom. Another important new development is the, some really definitive data that finally addresses the concern that has been raised over a long period about um, whether this phenomenon of clusters of leukaemia related to nuclear power plants is a real phenomenon or not. A study supported by the United States Department of Energy um, that looked at all of the evidence of reasonable quality um, found that the evidence really was quite, over, quite strong. And the case was really nailed home, I think absolutely irrefutably, uh, by some subsequent German data that involve a national study, 25 years of national cancer registry data in Germany, very uh, respectable academic institutions funded by the German government that found a high, more than doubling, highly statistically significant risk, increased risk of leukaemia for children under five who lived within five kilometres of a nuclear power plant. These are operated in pretty tight environmental and regulatory environment in Germany. Um, with, if you plot the risk by distance, uh, excess risk out to beyond 50 kilometres from these plants. Because childhood leukaemia is so dominant in the causes of cancer in children, if you look at cancer overall in children, you end up with the same very clear distance relationship and about a 50% increase in cancer overall in children living in proximity to nuclear power plants. This is not explicable on the basis of our current understanding of radiation risks, but is, is really incontrovertible evidence. Closer to home, some recent studies of New Zealand veterans who witnessed the British hydrogen bomb tests in the Pacific has shown now 50 years later quite remarkable findings using state-of-the-art genetic analyses called MFISH in the method, but basically mapping chromosomes and looking at how they've been rearranged to aggregate inappropriately. And basically um, bits of chromosomes that are in the wrong place are, are in different colours. 
um, in this example. This is a very sensitive method and, and radiation has a major influence on, on this kind of genetic rearrangement. And they found a threefold higher rate of, of these mismatches um, in the veterans versus in a very carefully matched control group. This is really extraordinary evidence about um, the long-term biological and genetic effects of radiation. There's one way in which the operation of substantial numbers of civilian nuclear power facilities increases the stakes here that I think warrants mention. We tend to think of the, the proliferation risks that, that, that Gareth mentioned, but there's another one that I think is important. If one looks at the potential radioactive inventory that can be released uh, from a nuclear power plant or a spent fuel storage facility, it's very substantial. And just one example using US government modelling an accident involving a plant in Guangdong near Hong Kong, 4% of the core is released. Within 48 hours, you've got almost 3 million people um, exposed to doses above the US EPA action limit. And in terms of thyroid doses, you've got 8 million people exposed to doses above when public health measures are recommended um, for a relatively minor accident. Even more than the reactors themselves, which at least have multiple containments, the spent fuel storage ponds that are next to them, many of them, um, contain very large inventories of long-lived isotopes in not particularly secure structures. Um, Joseph Hortblatt, the Nobel Prize-winning physicist, when he was at CIPRI, the institution that, that Rolf Achaeus chairs the board for some decades ago, did work showing that the radiation release of a nuclear bomb targeted on a nuclear reactor was dramatically increased. This is the one gray contour, that's a big dose of radiation for a one megaton bomb compared with a megaton bomb on a one gigawatt reactor. And if you look at it over time on a log scale, this is the bomb and this is the power plant hit by the bomb. Much longer um, problem of radioactive contamination. So if you're in the terrorist business, um, you don't really need a nuclear weapon. You just need, um, you could potentially achieve the same sort of catastrophic uh, effect by targeting one of hundreds of existing nuclear facilities. So I think it's really important to approach this issue on the basis of, of the physical and biological reality that really puts this in a, in a time frame that's really beyond any historic experience. And it's the nature of the materials and not the, na the current nature of their owners uh, I think which is the critical issue here and argues for, for universal and consistent approaches. Let me turn now briefly to the climate science. In the early 1980s, it was identified quite um, uh, by accident, actually, that the major climatic effects that would result of a number of nuclear detonations occurring on urban centres with large quantities of, of fuel, um, the original group of scientists, including Carl Sagan, that, that did this um, seminal work. Um, it's been known for a long time that when you uh, ignite fires simultaneously over urban centres, you can produce coalescence and firestorms that consume very large quantities of the, the fuel in those cities. This has happened in earthquakes, such as here in San Francisco a century ago. It's happened in bombings, in the conventional bombings, as well as in the atomic bombings. When you explode a nuclear weapon, very large amount, large areas of, of, of simultaneous fires will result. 
in a modern cities producing very carbon dense, uh, op optically active, uh, very black sooty smoke. This original work using quite crude atmospheric modelling showed that even 100 um, nuclear weapons targeted on cities could have almost the same severity of effect, although not quite as prolonged, as much more extensive use of nuclear weapons. Nobody had really updated this work until recently. Um, and this work was, I think, profoundly important um, in driving the achievements of, at the end of the Cold War and the, much of the progress that we've seen in disarmament to date. Um, so now we're down from 76,000 to something over 23,000 nuclear weapons. Has this significantly reduced this risk? Um, some of the original researchers, uh, led by Alan Roebuck at Rutgers University, have used the much more sophisticated um, climate science modelling that we now have and address the question of what would happen in a regional nuclear war using a hundred Hiroshima-sized weapons within the capacity of all of the nuclear weapon states with the exception of North Korea and in fact using 0.3% of the global nuclear arsenal in terms of, in terms of its yield. So a trivial fraction of the total, of the total arsenal. And this has been published and, and really not subjected to any significant uh, technical criticisms. Apart from the very extensive immediate casualties and radioactive contamination, the climate consequences are profound. This shows how the smoke would spread um, over a matter of weeks to essentially blanket the globe. Um, this war started on the 14th of May in South Asia and within a fortnight it's essentially everywhere in both hemispheres. Not only would it, be, would it be extensive in spread, but it would persist um, for a period of at least a decade because of the lofting of this smoke high into the stratosphere and its long-term persistence. Dramatic declines in precipitation, about 50% decline in the South Asian monsoon, shortening of temperate zone growing seasons by up to a month. Um, really the most dramatic and precipitous uh, climate um, change that really unprecedented in human history in a, in a world environmental system that's already significantly stressed by climate change in the opposite direction. So both in terms of temperature and precipitation uh, in the red, dramatic declines persisting for, for a decade or more. If you compare this with what would happen with a larger scale nuclear war, then let me just show you the next one, um, which is temperature predictions for Ukraine in the three years following the, a, a war using the weapons that would remain at the end of the implementation of the current sort agreements. And you can see that for three growing seasons, the temperatures don't go above zero. There is historic experience from volcanoes that have shown the profound vulnerability of temperate agriculture to, to temperature changes. There are other effects that I won't have time to go into, but they include substantial losses of ozone. So if you put all this together in terms of colder, darker, high ozone, radioactive contamination, other toxic contamination, and loss of inputs to agriculture that would result from, from a nuclear war, then and if you try and project what this might mean in terms of food consequences, we already have a billion people uh, on the edge in terms of food security not achieving adequate caloric intake, and this number has increased significantly recently. Global food stocks are 
are lower than they've been for, for many decades, less than two months uh, at the lowest point in 2007 of grain stocks. Famines have occurred in the past with large numbers of deaths related to very small declines in food production as a result of hoarding and price escalation. And we've already seen countries restrict exports of grain uh, in, in poor years with more than 300 million people globally dependent on grain imports. So I think a very conservative prediction is that this minuscule regional nuclear war in, terms, in proportion to the global arsenal um, would likely cause a billion people at least around the planet to succumb from starvation. And if you add to that the epidemics of disease that are likely to follow and potential other consequences, then even this um, is, is of clearly profound global consequences. So what are the lessons? I think the key implications is, is that it underscores the urgency and the need to get to zero and to do so very quickly. Um, and that we really can't consider this kind of global catastrophe to be substantially reduced in risk until the numbers of weapons decline, not to the, hun not to the thousands or the hundreds, but, but to the tens or less. And it really does emphasise some extra ways that, that civilian nuclear power exacerbates these dangers. Um, the fact that we're all at stake and the imperative to prevent any use. The last bit of science I want to mention is um, that humans are motivated by emotion um, more than by anything else. The neuroscience of that is increasingly being defined, but it's very clear. And so I would urge you to act on uh, the very important scientific conclusion that we all have some very compelling uh, reasons. All of the things we cherish are reasons to be active on this issue. Thank you.